Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider what happens when a Pulitzer Prize-nominated novelist deconstructs one of our nation's foundational myths in a novel that's both innovative and accessible. We get a fantastic new book to read. That's what. Woo! Yay! (laughs) Uh, The book we're talking about is Trust, the latest novel by Hernan Diaz. And the foundational myth is nothing less than capitalism. First, a little background on Hernan. He's been a finalist not just for the Pulitzer, but also for the Penn Faulkner Award. His first novel, In the Distance, was the winner of the Soroyan International Prize and a Publishers Weekly Top 10 Book of the Year and one of LitHub's 20 Best Novels of the Decade, among many other accolades. He's published stories and essays in the Paris Review, Granta, and McSweeney's, just to name a few. Trust is Ernan's second novel. It was longlisted for the Booker Prize and is a finalist for the Kirkus Prize. The structure of Trust is unusual. It's one novel that contains within it four different texts, each written in a different style. So the first text sets up an overarching story. It's a novel within the novel by a fictional novelist called Harold Vanner. And that describes the rise of a legendary Wall Street tycoon in the 1920s, his relationship with his wife, and the life they lead in the midst of seemingly infinite wealth. It's a testament to Ernan's incredible talent that despite this complex structure and the patience he sometimes requires of the reader, trust is an intriguing, surprising, and stirring read. We're so happy that we got to talk to Ernan about why he chose this inventive structure and about so much more. We started our conversation by asking about the fundamental American narratives challenged in trust. Take a listen. You've said, and I'm quoting you, I think the narratives about capital are an even more fundamental myth in America than those about the frontier. What narratives about wealth did you want to examine and expose and trust? And why are they more fundamental than myths about the frontier? I think I think it's more fundamental narrative or myth in the American imagination than that of the West, because uh, it underlies all other national narratives in the United States, even that of the West. The conquest of the West was not sort of a romantic endeavor or driven by uh, curiosity, science, or sort of a, uh, an adventurous spirit. Although, of course, there were people who, who did that. But the main reason was, of course, to to power the uh, industrial uh, revolution that was sort of gearing up in Europe and in the United States and to extract resources from nature and then pillage, really. That's the correct word, I feel. Mm-hmm. Nature in order, in order to, to feed the, the machinery of capital. So already there, I mean, if you peel back the layers, it is still a narrative about capital, the, the narrative of the West. And if you think about, you know, sort of common places about America and the American imagination, such as, I don't know, the American dream, I think capital and, and the, the ability to, to acquire private property uh, limitlessly 
is what defines the American dream at its core. I think that the notion of freedom as it is understood in, in the United States, although of course it has a, a brilliant side to it, it's also uh, very much rooted in the freedom to pursue gain and private property. Mm -hmm. And addressing the first part of your question, what sort of narratives I wanted to to address here in this novel, first of all, I, f I felt the urge to address the maleness of the narratives of capital, mm -hmm. the idea of the self-made man, and I use the, the word man quite deliberately. The more I read uh, toward this project, uh, historical documents and fiction both, I discovered that, you know, that uh, there were no women at all in the narratives of power and wealth mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. Um, and, and this didn't seem just an act of omission uh, or, or neglectfulness. It seemed quite deliberate and open act of erasure. Uh, there was no way that women uh, could have just... Uh, the, the roles of the pre-assigned roles of wife and secretary, perhaps, just by sheer coincidence. I do believe that wealth is constitutive of, of American identity. To have women erased from those narratives means that they have been marginalized from the stories that, for better or worse, mm -hmm. make up our country as we conceive it, to my mind. And this, this to me, demanded some sort of intervention. You use four different styles, writing styles in yes. trust. The book starts with an Edith Wharton-esque novel within the novel, followed by an historical document, then a memoir, then a diary or personal journal. Mm. And you've said that you created strict style guides for each section. <laughs> We're curious, can you give us some examples of various rules from the style guides and how did you go about creating them? How it happened was I was writing the third book, the Ida memoir, and then I went back and looked at something in, in the novel within the novel just to keep the storyline straight. Mm -hmm. I realized that both authors, Ida Partenza and Harold Vanner, were using certain introductory prepositional phrases in exactly the same way with ex the exact same punctuation and using, I don't know, present participles in a very similar way subordinate clauses in general, very similar. And I thought, wait a minute, this, this just can't be, right. you know, these, these authors are separated by half a century. They're very different uh, stylists. This is me. This is not them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I, I went back and uh, it all started with Ida and it was, it was the hardest book to write in that regard because I had to rewrite every sentence and learn the way in which she writes. Um, I read a lot of new journalism for that. I read and reread almost all of Joan Didion and tried to see how she did things. I really like her punctuation and I, I tried to learn from that. And at first I copied it and I, it just felt, it, it felt totally flat, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> it, it didn't, it, uh, which goes to show you can't, it, it's not that formulaic. You can't just, I learned how, how she used commas, mm -hmm. but just, when I copied it, it didn't work. I, I had to, I had to find my own way. Um, feel free to really shorten this because I, I like no. <laughs> five people may be moderately interested in all. Well, this. no, we're definitely two of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, just yeah. the statement, I love the way Joan Didion uses punctuation. Like I've, yeah. I've already got that mentally pinned. Oh, good. There's something about the style that you chose for the diary 
with lines like, you know, nurse just filed my nails, blowing away the dust as she went. That seems far removed from myth, whereas the more distant tone of the Edith Wharton-like novel seems more aligned with myth-making. You know, it gives the impression of a hovering eye with lines like, in the end, he became a wealthy man playing the part of a wealthy man. Yes. Can you say a little about the interplay between a given style and myth-making? Yeah. um, I also appreciate that you said that the first book is hovering. It was conceived like that. My editor at one point said, hey, there are no physical descriptions. I said, I I know. (laughs) I wanted the the characters to be quite literally disembodied. They're not in a body and they don't even speak. There's only one line of dialogue that is one word long in in that whole novel within the novel, which is also intentional because it has to do with that removal that you were mentioning. And then there is almost like a zooming in throughout the book because in in the second book we find a first person, but of course it's a fake first person we learn. Then in the third book, we have a proper first person with uh, proper introspections and, you know, and, and voice and very much a body. And, um, and then in the third one, we're, we're, we're inside this consciousness and this dying body. And do you think that the various styles affect myth-making in a way that it's easier to create a myth with one or the other? Absolutely, yes. I really try to drive that point home in the second book, which was a big gamble and a a big risk because I I know that section would turn quite a few readers off the book because it's a very grating voice. I was trusting the reader there to to stay with it. And that's also why there is a, a table of contents, just to show that it's short and there are so many blanks because I also wanted to give the reader the physical action of of turning the pages very quickly, you know, and maybe angrily sort of uh, snapping the pages. <laughs> but uh, but I still haven't answered your, your question. I think in that second section, and that's why it's there, and that's why it's so important, and that's why I wanted to uh, subject the readers to this sort of to this mild discomfort for 20 pages or so, because that is the kind of voice that we associate very quickly with power, with male power. And I thought it was it was crucial to the project to have that voice in there and to have the reader be a little annoyed with it. I think that that's an important experience in the book. And it had to be a little off-putting. It had to be even a little boring because that's the way we are spoken to when it comes to to money and power machinations. It's a kind of discourse that is designed to turn us away from it. I mean, think think of your credit card statement, you know? Yeah, right. Think, right. Of, think of any financial statements that you get from your whatever, 401k, your bank. They don't want to be read, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, from the layout, the famous small print but also, you know, the, the legalese and the rhetoric that is so convoluted and, and so abstruse intentionally. And the message is, don't bother yourself with this, you know. And I think there is a truth effect that comes with that. Like, if I don't fully understand what is being said, it must be true. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> We have been taught to, to, to be very submissive in that way. 
you know, and it's it's a horrible thing if you think about it. And of course, we have also been taught to to uh, distrust to a certain extent uh, strong first person voices, especially if they come from women. And that's where the truth of the book lies, you know, right. the, the book very much explores the connection between rhetoric and truth effects and also the, the sort of the contracts that we enter into whenever we read a text. So we recently interviewed Rebecca Rag Sykes. She's an archaeologist and the author of Kindred, which is a book about Neanderthals. Oh, and cool. Yeah, it's a super fun book. Highly recommend it. And in it, she writes, while minds create things, things also create minds in a manner that extends far beyond the individual or even the generation and can transform whole species. So one example she gives is Neanderthal's creation of a kind of adhesive and how the ability to understand adhesion could relate to syntax. In other words, joining words together using language. Beautiful. Do you think this overall idea works with respect to fiction? In other words, can we accurately say, while minds create fictions, fictions also create minds? Well, you, you are talking to a fiction writer who has an almost religious belief in the importance <laughs> of literature. So my answer will be a resounding yes. And, uh -huh. You know, at least since Plato in the 10th book of the Republic, the question has always been, how does, how does literature or art imitate life? Mm -hmm. And uh, how can this be done uh, accurately? And uh, I think very much in line with what you just said, I, I, I'm, I become more interested kind of in the flip side to that question. How does fiction or art in general shape a reality? Because I think it does. You know, we've, we've talked about all these ways in which narratives shape our perception of, of politics, of power. And those are all stories we tell ourselves. And if you think about it, uh, our perception of time has the structure of fiction, you know, mm -hmm. or is shaped by, by fiction. And what could be more important than that? The way in which we experience time, recollect our past and imagine our future. Absolutely. And I almost want to say conversely, but it's not conversely, but it, to come at the, another angle, in any case, I'll just ask the question. Yeah. <laughs> You've said that, the, and I'm quoting you again, the greatest luxury good today out there is not mansions or yachts. It is reality itself. Can you say a little more about what you mean by that? Well, obviously, I have a penchant for it hyperbole that that seems <laughs> that seems that seems clear well, i don't know maybe not like maybe that's a very yeah, literal exactly. statement <laughs> got the ring of truth what i'm seeing yeah. in the world i think so i think so and i think it's something that probably became very visible starting with modernity which to me starts with a printed word mm -hmm. with a letterpress and with uh, the expansion of, of literacy and the access to books and the printed word in general, I think reality started becoming very malleable, you know, with a proliferation of narratives and the ability to consume them. Reality became something that could be shaped according to, to those narratives in a much more effective way than before. This became even more accentuated, I think, with, with the birth of, of mass media, first with radio and film, later, of course, with 
television. And needless to say, this is on like overdrive now with, with social media. But if you think of that historical arc from, from sort of a Gutenberg to uh, Zuckerberg, mm -hmm. I think it's, it, it has always been about the same thing. I mean, it's been about many things, of course, but, but it has always been about creating a narrative that would, in some cases, even supersede reality itself. It would trump reality itself and what is available to us through our senses. I, I think of religion here as one example that, of course, predates all of what we were saying. But that would be a very eloquent example of what I'm trying to say of narratives that even that are stronger even than our experience of life, right. you know? I think those narratives have, over the course of, you know, what is it now, uh, 500 years or so, uh, have been amplified and, and commodified also in ways that are unprecedented. To my mind, that is now what defines power, is the ability to create a narrative and impose it onto others as if it were indeed their own reality, as if it were indeed their own narrative of things. I wonder, too, whether we see this kind of playing out in real time, the connection between power and narrative, because we seem to have had maybe a moment, like a very brief moment when the internet was kind of free to disperse or disseminate a wide array of counter narratives before, you know, Facebook and everyone caught on and started to fight it. But some of the unbelievable unrest that we've seen in recent years around the globe can be attributed to this window into what it would be like if, if there were all of these counter narratives that ran unchecked. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. No, th there, was, there was a very brief window. But I would also say and this would maybe sound a little strange, but I think the unspoken word in what you just said is monopoly. Sort of the, there yeah. is this mm -hmm. concentration. There yeah. is this concentration. There is free speech, but I don't know if there is truly free access. When all the outlets are in the hands of just a few people, we need to rethink the definition of freedom of speech. But I think the flip side to this, because there is a flip side, is also a little bit disturbing because anyone now has uh, in one way or another access to these channels, you know, through the internet, you can, you, you can start your blog right now and, you know, write whatever you like, whether people will read it or not is a different question. But I think there is also sort of an, an inflation of selfhood and of opinion that to me is a little disturbing you know, how all opinions kind of were told matter and they I don't feel they do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, it's a mess. It's a mess. And I think we are expected to have an opinion about everything. I was at the airport the other day. I was going to the bathroom. And as I was leaving the bathroom, there was, I'm sure you've seen these things. There was a, a, like a little switch on the wall how was your experience yeah i just started this, noticing those in, in this, this bathroom, bathroom. And you can, i think you can say like po positive negative or indifferent or maybe just positive or negative yeah and i was like 
I just went to the bathroom. Right. <laughs> now we have to read that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That to me was a very eloquent moment of this, again, inflation of opinion and sort of almost, you know, this mm. being pushed to have one about your bathroom experience, about right. everything. Of course, everyone is entitled to an opinion, but there might be a little over, <laughs> we might be oversharing a little bit. That's very funny about the bathroom. I guess. <laughs> and to his broader point, you see these kinds of surveys in so many contexts nowadays. Every time I buy a bucket hat, for some reason I've developed a profound love for bucket hats, I get a, you know, how do you like your purchase email? Which in one sense I guess is personal. It's asking my opinion, but I still feel like a data point in the agglomeration of data points that they're seeking. Yeah, I think I'm much crankier about those feedback pitches than you are. Although I have to admit, when I saw the same bathroom pitch in an airport recently, my first reaction was, this is hilarious. <laughs> but even so, as Ernan was suggesting so often, particularly in a case like the bathroom, the information just isn't needed. And I wonder why they're even asking. I mean, look, it's a universal truth that people will be happier with a clean and functioning bathroom. Just make sure the bathroom's clean and the toilets work. <laughs> I also want to point out that it sometimes feels like our opinion is being glorified in contexts where it doesn't matter, like the bathroom, and simultaneously being disregarded in contexts where it really should mean something. Like, oh, I don't know, for example, if more than 60% of Americans support banning assault-style weapons, shouldn't we be able to enact a federal ban on assault-style weapons? Yeah, I'm going to resist the urge to start ranting about our government and say instead that Ernan is, of course, right about power stemming from the ability to create a narrative and impose it on others. He's written a book that challenges one such narrative regarding wealth that's held sway for a very long time. Here we are discussing this counter narrative and sharing the conversation with all of you, hoping you'll get curious about his ideas and maybe read and discuss the book too. That is what I call a book dream. Yes. And with that thought, I'm going to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Ernan at ernandiaz.net. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love. Listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.